Let me start with a question. What is it that you plug into in life? What is the thing that energizes you, that motivates you, that you're willing to sacrifice for, that gives you and your life meaning? What's that thing? Or things. That maybe it's the thing you always talk up, that you tell your friends about, that you have bookmarked pages on your computer or apps on your phone for. Another way to ask this question is, what do you worship? <coughs> now, when you hear it put that way, I'm sure your first response is, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I worship this thing. Uh, there are things in my life that are important, but I don't worship any of them. But I will say this. Uh, we all have something, someone, some things that really mean the world to us. We pursue them. They motivate us. We plug into them. We hope for life from them. We worship. You know, a little bit ago, I heard um, online a graduation speech from David Foster Wallace uh, that now has been collected and printed. It's called This is Water. And he talks about this. Here's what he says. It's a little bit longer than I normally read what someone else said, but I think it's worth it. Um, he says this, but because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible, intangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They're the default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into. Day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that is what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Does any of that make sense to anyone here? You know, in this series, um, the theme is why I love Jesus. And at the same time, this is a season of Advent, 
where we celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. And today, I actually see these two themes really coming together nicely. This week, the focus of Advent is love. So we did peace, hope, love, and next week is joy. And so this week is love, but today, I want to focus on the response that naturally follows from the experience of love, love in return, specifically worship. If you don't know me, uh, if you know me for a little bit, you can probably figure something out. I, I love like the specific action of worship, like in a group with music, singing songs, right? A lot of times in churches, we refer to that as worship. But I think on another level, we understand that that's not all that worship is. Anything you do with your life can be an act of worship. And I think that's important to understand. But for me, this, this act of being together, of singing songs in community, has been so powerful and so meaningful to me. I love it. And I love Jesus because he has led us into this type of expression. And we see it in the Bible, all these psalms. And some of them are laments, but some of them are just songs of praise. I love that environment. It's made such a difference in my life. I remember as an 18-year-old, maybe 17, but I think I was 18 at that point, going on this church retreat. And the, the theme, looking back, sounds kind of cheesy because the, the, the song of the weekend is often a children's song, but we sort of did an adult version, although it's very similar, called His Banner Over Me is Love. And the retreat was about uh, experiencing the love, the perfect, unconditional love of a parent. And we sang the song, His Banner Over Me is Love, and for the first time in that environment, I actually experienced that in a tangible way that impacted who I was and how I saw myself and how I interacted with people ever since. It was powerful. It was in a moment of corporate worship, singing songs. A few years later, I guess I was probably about 21 at this point, I was at another conference. And I was in a season of trying to figure out, what, what do I do next in my life? I was about to graduate from college. I didn't have a clear sense of what I was going to do. I've been praying over the summer about maybe becoming a pastor, because it seemed like I kept getting asked to do these things on campus that were very pastoral, and I liked them. They seemed to go well. So I went in this conference not sure of what to do. And on the last session and last night of the conference, um, I remember the band got up. Uh, there hadn't been any sort of warm-up message or anything. And I remember my friend Siler was leading the team. He played one guitar chord, one. And I just began to weep. There was a, like a 45-minute worship set. I wept for 45 minutes. Just experiencing the presence of God in a very tangible, real way. I wept so much and so loud, I lost a contact. I had two going in, one coming out. Uh, it looked like someone had socked me in both eyes because I kept doing this until it was sort of like rubbed a little bit raw. I met God in that moment, and that was the time that I felt like he said, I made you to do this pastor thing. And in me, that my, in my mind, it meant plant a church do a startup congregation, which became this church. Worship has been 
Very powerful mindset. I love it, and I love that Jesus invites us into worship. It's one of the things I love about him. So today we're going to talk about that. And I'm asking the question, why would or why should anyone worship God? If we're going to worship something, right? That's what David Foster Wallace said, and I think he's on to something. We're going to default, end up worshiping something, but if we step back and get to choose what we worship, why would we want to worship God? That's what we're going to look at today. Sound interesting? I hope so, because that's what you're going to get. So Romans 12, the first two verses, uh, I think it's in your bulletin, it'll be projected behind me. And the early church leader, Paul, he wrote this. He said, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, the first reason I'm going to suggest that someone might want to worship God is something you might expect in a typical sermon. I think this is a good reason. Uh, I think it's true, but I also find it to be a little limiting, but yet an important foundation, and that is this. We're commanded to worship God. So therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's Paul's encouragement, his command to people. Worship. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. There are lots of commands in the Bible about worshiping God. The first commandment in Deuteronomy 6, chapter 5, and repeated by Jesus in Matthew 22 is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Uh, And there are lots of commands that say, praise the Lord, right, throughout the Bible. You don't even have to have read the Bible to know that that's probably in there a lot, praise the Lord. Now, for some of you, this is all you need. You know we're commanded to worship, and you think so, let's do it. And I think and expect for most of you that are in that place, that there's also some story behind that, some context where you realize it's more than just a command. It's an opportunity And we'll talk more about that later. But for many of you, this at best sounds like a rule. Something to be done. Because you're supposed to. And on some level, I guess that's okay. But rules, as we all know, have limited power to motivate our lives. We soon find reason to ignore a rule or get around a rule. They just don't have a lot of oomph. On their own. So at best, a command like this on its own is really unsustainable. It's not, it might get you started, but won't take you very far. Or if that's all you have as a rule, it gets, can get really warped and weird, right? But at worst, it's something else. If all we have is a rule commanding us to worship God, what does that say about God? What do we think about people who want us to tell them how great they are all the time. We think that they're insecure, unhealthy, egomaniacs who need to be constantly stroked, right? Think about the people in your life. They're annoying. So at its worst, a command alone makes God look petty, insecure, and needy. So let's not end there. Let's keep looking 
and see if there's more that this passage can give us. Another key aspect, I think, of this passage is that beyond a rule, I think it points to God actually being worthy of worship. God's worthy of worship. It says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is worship. In view of God's mercy. That's a key phrase. And I think it indicates that worshiping God is actually a response to engaging with God's mercy or his goodness. Now, this makes sense to me. You know what? Honestly, when someone lets me in in traffic, I spontaneously give them a wave. Anyone else do that, right? It just seems natural and right and good to say, hey, thanks. There's a little wave. Sometimes when I just cut them off, that's all they get to get it too, right? (laughs) God bless you and your mercy. Thank you for that humbling honk. I needed it. Uh, If someone gives you a ride when it's raining, I think you would probably say thank you, right, without thinking about it. You wouldn't have to have someone text you and say, don't forget to thank the person who just gave you a ride in the rain. But the bigger the mercy, I think the bigger and more involuntary the response is. So you don't even have to think about it. Think about this. If your home, your apartment, your house were burning down, and inside your home was your child, your spouse, your parents, and a firefighter broke down the door, ran in and grabbed your your loved one, coughing, pulled them out just in the nick of time, handed your daughter, your son over to you, let you embrace your mother again, what would you do? Without being told, without having to have it explained, you would turn to whoever that person is and say, thank you. You are awesome. You're the best. And then you probably turn back to your loved one and then you turn back, thank you so much, right? You wouldn't have to think about it, plan it, have someone tell you to do it. So in this passage, the author is asking his readers to reflect on God's mercy after, in the chapter before, which we didn't read, he explains what God's mercy is, and he explains it as being welcomed into God's family, here and now and eternally. It's an amazing thing, God's mercy. And he says, in view of this, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not just because it's a rule, but because it's natural, it makes sense. And who wouldn't, when really in touch, and touched by the mercy of God, respond with, you know, practically spontaneous worship? But there's more here for us, because sometimes I think particularly when life is difficult and it's hard to really connect emotionally or even in your mind with the mercy of God, we can lose touch with the mercy of God. We forget And that's when it's really easy to slide back into whatever default settings that we have in our lives. And we start to worship things that everyone else does. So how can we, in those times, choose worship? Take a step back, say, I'm not just going to slide into what everyone else or culture or what I've done in the past. I'm going to make a choice about where I focus my energy and my affections. And I think this thing will help us do that. Knowing that worshiping God is really good for us. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, hear that. He's talking about the default settings in our lives yet, right? He's saying the renewing of your mind. The typical patterns of the world, those are the default settings. 
And he's saying they can be renewed through the practice of worshiping God. And he goes on and says this, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. Worship connects us. It's an on-ramp to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will in our lives. It's an on-ramp to have our minds renewed so that we don't conform unwittingly to the patterns of this world. Did you catch that? I mean, did you catch something else? There's something else I want to notice here. Who benefits from the worship of God? It's not God. It's us. We experience the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. God experiences that anyway right? He doesn't need us to experience his goodwill. And the command to worship God is for us. It's not for God. God doesn't need it. We do. We need transformation. We need our minds renewed. God's doing okay. He's got those things sorted. This isn't about boosting his ego. Worship was never about boosting God's ego. It's about lifting us up. And there's a few reasons for that. I think one, David Foster Wallace really points to that we become what we worship. That's why this is so important. That's why we need to choose what we worship. We become what we worship. Uh, There's a theologian, N.T. Wright, he's famous in certain circles, and he points this out just like David Foster Wallace did in his book, Simply Christian. He writes, When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object you worship. Those who worship money become eventually human calculating machines. Those who worship sex become obsessed with their own attractiveness or prowess. And those who worship power become more and more ruthless. But I want you to notice something Uh, that the Christian scriptures say about those who worship God. This is from 2 Corinthians. This is Paul writing again, and he writes, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. Those who contemplate the Lord's glory, who gaze in awe, are being transformed into his image. And what do they experience? They or we or anyone who does this can experience ever-increasing glory, God's perfect, pleasing will, the experience of that in our lives. And it closes by saying this comes from the Lord. Why do we choose? Why would we choose of all the things? Why would we step back? And think, what am I just falling, sliding into? What else could I choose to put my attention, my affections toward? And when we do this, borrowing from Mike, who came and talked to us a couple weeks ago, it makes you and me more truly human. We're made in God's image. When we reflect and gaze on God's image, we're transformed more into him. We become more human. 
we can experience life like it's supposed to be in a renewed fashion. Things are messed up in our lives. Things are messed up in our world. We need transformation. Doesn't mean we're not good or that when God created everything and made us in his image, uh, it says that God said, this is very good. That's all true, right? But it gets messed up along the way. People hurt us. We hurt them. There's forces in this world that are very negative and dark. We experience that. It affects us. We need transformation, renewal. So, and another reason this would be good is this. Heaven isn't too far away. Okay? Children of the 90s, forgive me for reference to the warrant song, Heaven Isn't Too Far Away. For those of you, you know, born in this century, it goes something like, Heaven isn't too far away. Now imagine I had like a lot of hairspray and big hair and makeup on. You might get it. Then try to forget that image if you possibly can. And if you hate that song, actually, I really don't like that song, you can say this, God's presence is very near instead of heaven isn't too far away. Put it in your own words. Um, Now, this sounds simple, uh, but it's actually a really weighty theological idea. And to fully appreciate it, I think it's helpful to consider some of the ways that humanity has most commonly viewed our interactions with the divine, our interactions with God. And over the years, like three main ways have kind of come into the consciousness of humanity. And option one is this, no separation between humanity and God or the divine. And this approach, God's space, our space, it's the same thing, or two ways of talking about the same thing. And God doesn't hide out in a corner of his territory. God is everywhere, and everywhere is God. And this view is called pantheism. And there's some different versions, and uh, it's a bit of a broad stroke. I understand that. But just to give you some context. Option two, instead of no separation, great distance. So the other end of the spectrum. It's where God is where God is, and we are where we are, and it's very far apart. So the gods or God or the divine, if he, they, she even exist, they're in heaven, wherever that is, happy and uninvolved with what's going on here on earth. And from this point of view, there is little point in expecting to experience God. Uh, He, she, it, they might intervene, but only in super rare circumstances, if at all. Okay, so there's two ends of the spectrum. Option three uh, is what I'm calling overlapping and interlocking. And this, it seems to me, is the perspective that we see described in the Christian scriptures. So God's presence and all existence is actually not the same thing. Now, God's fingerprints can be seen on everything, humans, uh, nature, relationships, but he has a separate personality or God has a separate personality. God can be related to as a person that can be interacted with and known. Paul famously writes, I want to know Christ. Now, while God exists outside of the things of earth, he's not separate from the goings-on in the world either. 
Instead, God's space or God's presence overlaps and interlocks with the earth in our experience. And this is the way we see God interacting with the people in the Hebrew scriptures, as well as the Christian scriptures. He speaks to people. God leads them. God provides for them. Perhaps, most dramatically, God sets up a permanent place of interaction where his presence would always dwell on the earth, even as he, or God, is in heaven. This place was called the temple. And in the temple was a sacred artifact known as the Ark of the Covenant, where God's actual presence rested. It was described as a place of intersection between heaven and earth. The Ark was kept in a place called the Holy of Holies, behind a curtain that was six inches deep. Now, the curtain, I think, is actually a very helpful way to understand how this view of a relationship between God's presence and our experience works. In this view, God's presence is on earth and always near, all around us, not far off at all, but we are often generally unaware of it, as if we're separated by a veil or a curtain. So heaven isn't some place way out there. It's another dimension that interlocks with ours and connects with ours and is all around us, but we often are unaware of it. So when Jesus came, and this is Advent, so this this fits very perfectly, the incarnation of God in human form, God with us, the literal overlapping and interlocking between heaven and earth happened in a person. And when Jesus came, he went to the temple, and a famous story is he cleansed it, turning over tables, driving out merchants, driving out money changers, and then he predicted the literal destruction of the temple and symbolically pointed to himself saying, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And this is what he did. And as Jesus was crucified, it's reported in three of the Gospels, three of the stories of the life of Jesus in Christian scripture, that the curtain that separated humanity from, the, from heaven, the presence of God, six inches deep, ripped in half. And the veil or the curtain that separated humanity from the presence of God there was just symbolically and in some ways practically removed. And as Jesus was raised, he formed a new temple, but not in himself, in those that would follow him. So in 1 Corinthians it says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? And all of this, adding up to, I know it's a little bit of exposition background here. What this means is that in a world where God's presence is just a thin veil away, through Jesus, we personally have the opportunity to be an actual place of intersection between heaven and earth, both together and as individuals, as a temple for God's presence. So heaven isn't too far away. It's right here, right now, all around us like another dimension that we are just always just a thin veil away from experiencing at any moment. So heaven isn't like Mount Olympus 
where all the gods are hanging out and they're eating grapes and they've got the nectar of the gods and they're chilling, their feet are up, they're wearing robes, forgetting about whatever they started on earth that's going wrong. It's more like the internet. Here, all the time, all around us. And what we need to do is connect. Interlock. Log in. And so the encouragement to worship, to pursue the presence of God, is not to appease an angry, insecure God who demands a boost, but rather it's to experience more of what it means to be human, to connect to a good, life-giving God. And let me add this little thing, which I like, a little add-on here at the end, and also to have fun. I don't know if you're expecting that, but worshiping God, I think, makes the best things in our life better. And we experience this in other arenas. Um, any runners here? Any athletes, people who, you know, do things until your body hurts and consider that fun, a good thing? Yes. You people? I just you peopled you. Did you notice that? After a workout, after a run, after a game, when you're tired or at halftime or whenever it is, and you get a moment to have a cold, refreshing, renewing drink, and you chug that down, what do you do after the last swallow? Oh, who did it? Who did it? Someone went, you don't plan it. You don't think, oh, I'm going to go, ah, now. <laughs> but whatever you just drank somehow tastes better, feels better. You experience it in a better way by expressing, like, thanks to the universe for that drink. Ah, that's what worship is. It makes that good thing better. How many of you like to go to sporting events? A few? It's okay if you don't. No judgment here. I'm one of the people that does like to go to sporting events. Has, <laughs> I just thought of this. Has anyone seen the video of me when the Cubs won the World Series? Okay, if it's your first time, I'm sorry. There's no way you would have seen this video because you wouldn't be friends with me on Facebook. But that crazy, laughing, cheering response, when you're at a game, I'll assume a lot of Eagles fans here, and the Eagles score a touchdown. Maybe it's in your living room. Do you clap? Do you cheer? Do you stand up and go, touchdown? Or do you just be like, oh, that was nice. <laughs> I guess now we have a better chance of winning this game. <laughs> Steve, isn't that a good thing? Well, yes, Brad, I think it is good. Our probability of winning has gone up 65%. Hmm. No, you cheer. Why? It feels good. It makes the good thing that just happened, your team scoring, better. That's worship. Anybody like to go to concerts? Hear your favorite band, favorite artist. What do you do after your favorite song just got knocked out of the park by your favorite artist? You cheer. You shout. Some people hear you go, booze. Whatever you do. You do it because why? It makes the experience better for you. And it shows some appreciation for the artist, yes. 
And I'm sure on some level, some of those artists, they really appreciate it. They, maybe they even need it. But it's worship. You're not necessarily, that's what worship is. I'm not saying you're worshiping Bruce or you're worshiping, some people do. <laughs> but worship makes the good things in our life even better. It shapes who we become. And it makes the things that we appreciate sweeter. We need this. This is why I would say you get to choose what you worship. Right now, a lot of us, and I do this, we just slide into what people tell us is supposed to be important. We hope in certain things because that's what we're supposed to do. You know? We want security. We, we go after things we think will give us security, right? And in some sense, we begin to worship those things. I'm just saying we can choose. And all those other things don't do what worshiping God does, in my opinion. They don't pay off the same way. They're not bad things. Job's not a bad thing. Getting a promotion's not a bad thing. You know, having a, a fulfilling relationship with a human being isn't a bad thing at all. They're all good things, but when they become the thing, then they begin to drive us and demand from us instead of fill us and renew us. You don't have to worry about that with worshiping Jesus. It makes things better. We need these things. The worship of God does the opposite of eating us alive, like David Foster Wallace said at the beginning. It makes life alive. So let's, let's just choose to reset our defaults. Let's choose to pursue this and this God. Let's choose to worship. And I know it's much bigger than musical worship. Uh, our whole lives can, any action can have meaning. But I also know that for me in particular, uh, the opportunity to be in the presence of God in a corporate setting is very powerful. So I want to have the band come up.